Okay. Well, I think we've got a really um, great session uh, for you today. We've got a really uh, exciting list of speakers. Um, we've got about three hours or so, and we'll go through um, a lot of information. Um, this workshop session is designed to be, in large part, a discussion. Um, and so even though we have a lot of people speaking, um, I've asked everybody to try to keep their comments um, relatively brief to 10 or 12 minutes um, per speaker, and that should save us about a third to a half um, of the time to actually have some active discussion um, among the speakers, but also with, um, with everybody else. Um, so we've got our agenda broken up into three sections, and so we'll have um, you know, a few people come up in each section as they speak, and then um, we'll have those few individuals kind of um, lead a discussion among the, the audience on that particular topic. Um, our overarching topic for the day is life cycle assessment. Uh, and in particular, um, uh, we wanna talk uh, in today's session about some of the new trends um, that are emerging with life cycle assessment and new ways that um, organizations are using this tool than um, the work that they do. Um, I've taken it as, uh, I guess, for granted that most people in the room have at least a, a decent knowledge of what a life cycle assessment is. We haven't wanted to make this a kind of 101 level, what is an LCA or how do you do an LCA? Um, you don't need to know a whole lot about um, life cycle assessment or how, how to use it, but we've not wanted to spend a lot of time on that background because we feel like most people um, you know, get that, um, that topic. Um, but the idea we want to show is how people are using this tool to do really innovative things in their organizations um, and how some of the applications of life cycle assessment um, might actually be quite a bit different than what um, you might think of when you see that term. I think a lot of people um, you know, have seen a lot of, of work from this field, um, but what they, what they think of when they hear life cycle assessment uh, may not actually be um, necessarily the way that a lot of, of organizations are now finding um, ways to use these, these types of tools. Um, we have, in my opinion, a really outstanding group of speakers. I was, um, you know, having the, the chance to organize a, a panel, you know, I made a list of, of people that I think would be great to have here, and we're fortunate in, in the Boston and Cambridge area, actually, to have quite a concentration of, of outstanding um, LCA-related professionals, but also some people from out of town um, have joined us for the, um, for the panel. And so I think we're all quite fortunate to have, uh, have this group of individuals. Um, so I'll give just a few words of introduction, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into to some of our speakers. Um, by the way, my name is, is John Detling. I'm uh, with a company called Qantas. I manage our U.S. team at, at Qantas, and we do life cycle assessment work and, and other work on sustainability uh, metrics and management. And, um, so uh, I, I think a, a point I wanted to start with about life cycle assessment is that I feel like it's a topic when when many people first get introduced to it, um, it creates, I, I think, in people who are passionate about sustainability, a lot of excitement. And I think the reason that is, is because it, it prevents, or it presents to people um, a vision of how they can, can kind of get their heads around what were otherwise very difficult issues to, to address. Um, and I think that idea of how can we systematically um, consider and address issues in sustainability um, is something that, um, that's unique to this, this type of tool um, because it gives us a very comprehensive view um, of how we can, can solve problems that you know, bef before people were kind of turned on to this approach um, might have seemed almost unsolvable. And so I, I feel like there's many people out there who are very passionate um, about this approach, about this way of thinking, 
Um, and that causes people sometimes I think to be a little bit over um, effusive or over passionate about the, the power of LCA. And I feel like that's in some cases led to some backlash against it. I feel like there's a lot of people out there um, that also are quite critical um, uh, of the practice. And I think um, a big part of the reason that is is because there's also people out there that, you know, that um, claim to promise so much from the field of life cycle assessment. And so um, part of what I like to do when I introduce the topic um, is try and um, be as honest as I can about both the strengths of, of the topic but also the weaknesses and the, the fact that there is a lot of, of uncertainty and, and uh, challenging things to address with, um, with the topic of life cycle assessment. Um, but I think it's in, um, uh, you know, important to, uh, to point out kind of that, that big strength of helping us you know, really try to address issues in a systematic way that are, are otherwise quite difficult to, um, uh, to get our heads around. Uh, I think one of the, the big trends driving this field in the past several years um, is that there's been an, an effort, I think because of that, that big promise that LCA holds, um, for people to think about the idea of trying to do a life cycle assessment on, um, you know, on all the, the products that are out there, more or less. There's initiatives like um, Sustainability Consortium would be an example, some of the, the legislation in, in France and other countries, um, new programs under the EU. Uh, and many other things where people have kind of had this idea of what if we had, you know, product footprint information available on all the products that we make as a company or as a retailer on all the products that we sell in our stores. Um, and I think that's a vision, you know, a decade ago people would have thought was not feasible. And I think now there's a number of programs where people are working towards that. Um, and I think, it, you know, it's quite exciting to have that vision. Um, I think one of the things that's led to has been a lot of struggle um, in trying to do that. It, it's, a, it's an ambitious thing to try to undertake. Um, and, and I think because of those struggles, um, people have started to recognize some of the, the challenges in doing this at, at a broad scale. And I feel like that's been one of the main themes in this field for the past several years is trying to um, you know, understand and uh, figure out how to get over some of those major hurdles um, that we encounter when we try and take this type of tool and apply it to such a huge range uh, of information. Um, and so what we found is that it's a really long and challenging road to get to the point where we, we feel like we can have this information on the number of products that we'd like to have it on in order to um, you know, really be able to, um, to make some of those decisions. Um, but at the, at the same time, um, the people have been working very hard at doing that. And I feel like there's been a, a huge growth and a lot of excitement in this field in the, in the past decade or so. Um, there's been a lot of new developments and a lot of maturation, I think, in this science that's taken place somewhat behind the scenes over that same time frame. And so while there have been these initiatives working hard at, you know, how can we bring this to scale? How can we do it efficiently? How can we produce thousands of product footprints instead of, um, of a few? Um, there have been a lot of other developments that I think people are starting to take advantage of in this field. And that's, I think, the main thing that we want to highlight in the session today um, is some of the other very innovative things and innovative ways people are using, um, uh, using this approach uh, and try and you know, make people a little bit more aware of those and see um, how in some ways this, you know, this same concept behind life cycle thinking, product footprinting, corporate footprinting is starting to underlie a lot of what organizations are doing on sustainability um, and starting to tie in with, um, with other, other aspects of their work. Um, so uh, just a few key points to, to consider as we go through the session. I think these are things that we'll come back to as we, um, as we discuss uh, each of the topics that people bring up. Um, uh, one of the uh, 
you know, the main things is, is how does this help organizations understand what's important in what, in, in what they're doing? I think that's one of the big um, benefits of, of life cycle thinking is you get a view of everything that's going on um, in the system you're looking at, and that can help you focus on, on you know, where do you want to put your effort and where should you not waste your effort? And I think um, we'll see some ways in which, in which the tool can help people do that. Um, it also can help people identify how to make improvements and give a little bit of a roadmap, um, provide a guide, uh, a guidance for management actions and, and things that can take in, uh, actions that can be taken in a certain system. Um, can help uh, organizations track the progress that they're making um, on the topic, engage with their stakeholders. Um, and also, it's, it's a great tool for helping people rethink how they're doing things and think critically about, um, about how their activities relate to, to what's going on um, elsewhere in the world. Um, so we, we've broken the session into to three main subjects. And again, we'll have a few speakers to get us started on each of those subjects. Um, the, uh, the three different areas are kind of, uh, as I think of it, kind of axes of ways that LCA has kind of been expanding um, in recent years. The first one is focusing on how LCA is addressing different subjects. I think when a lot of people think of life cycle assessment, they think of a very um, kind of typical project where people are looking at a, you know, a certain product and, and you're trying to pr produce a footprint of that product. Um, there's a lot of cases where what, what we're studying is not products. It's much larger, more complex systems. It's whole organizations. It's um, government policy. It's, um, I was talking with somebody this morning about, um, you know, doing the, the footprint of um, the European soccer championship, so, you know, a huge event or something like that. And so it's a tool that we can bring to measure and understand and report on on all kinds of different, different things. And so that's the, the first of those topics that we wanted to address is how is this tool, you know, going beyond kind of the product focus to other, other, uh, other subjects. The second one is looking at different impact um, areas. Um, there's been a lot of activity. Um, I think the, you know, the preponderance of, of work in this topic often tends to focus on carbon and carbon footprint. Um, and I think there's a lot of other work that's um, doing what people might call, you know, something like a full LCA, which is taking, you know, a list of maybe eight or 12 impact areas, but almost always the same ones. Um, but I think one of the things that's been um, developing quite a lot recently um, is very good work on helping us address um, other areas of impact that we've not been um, as capable of in the past of addressing. And so that's the second subject, is looking at, um, at some issues like social impacts and looking at, at water footprint and, and other things. Um, the third uh, section is talking about um, how are we able to get these tools and really adapt them to, um, I think, the, the speed in a lot of way at which the, especially the business world moves, but also um, uh, other things like, like public policy and, and so forth. Um, so that's kind of how do we get this information up to scale. Um, and we have uh, several good speakers in that section talking about tools that are being developed to help um, people produce this information more rapidly, but then also, because of that, be able to apply it, um, uh, apply it in, in a much broader scale. Um, so that's kind of an, an overview of our, our day. Um, so to start to get into that, uh, we'll, we'll dive into the speakers. Um, our first speaker uh, is Cynthia Cummins. Uh, Cynthia is the Deputy Director of the GHG Protocol um, with WRI's Climate and Energy Program. Um, she manages the GHG Protocol's corporate work, which includes activities related to corporate scope three and product lifecycle standards. Uh, Ms. Cummins is a well-known expert in GHG accounting and brings more than 15 years of experience 
working on the issue of global climate change. Um, prior to WRI, Cynthia was the director of carbon management at Clear Carbon Consulting, where she managed uh, carbon quantification and management projects um, for several Fortune 500 clients, um, as well as large public institutions. Uh, Ms. Cummins is, was the founding director of US EPA's Climate Leaders Program, um, which is a voluntary program that, partnered with, that partners with businesses to develop corporate-wide greenhouse gas inventories and reduction goals. Uh, for more than five years, she led the design and implementation of the program and oversaw the growth of the program um, to more than 90 corporate partners. Cynthia holds a MPA in environmental policy from Columbia University in New York City and also a BS from Cornell University in Ithaca. Um, so welcome, Cynthia. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, John. I never had anyone read my entire bio. Like, <laughs> makes me feel really old. Um, okay. So I'm just going to touch on today on just a couple of topics that I'm working on. Just give you some highlights. Uh, I'm going to just talk about GHG protocol. I don't know how many people here are familiar with it. Uh, talk about what we're calling uh, scope three accounting, which is based on life cycle assessment using what we say life cycle thinking. And then. Um, talk about a new organization called the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council, which is also using LCA as a foundation for their work. How many people here are familiar with WRI? Most of you, how many, are you all familiar with GHG protocol as well? Yeah, it seems like, all right, so I won't spend much time on that. All right, but as you know, uh, GHG protocol is a partnership with WRI and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Uh, we were started back in 1998, and the mission is uh, to work to build sustainable strategies, uh, create the foundation for sustainable strategies for companies to, uh, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And now we're actually developing standards for policymakers as well. So the corporate standard we started uh, that we have are we have three corporate standards. The original one was the corporate what we call the corporate standard, which just looks at emissions from uh, um, operations from a company. And then in parallel, we developed the product standard, which is like a single impact LCA standard, just looking at greenhouse gas emissions, and also our scope three value chain standard. Um, and they. And the corporate value chain standard, I'll show you, categorizes emissions with these 15 buckets um, using LCA thinking. And so you can see in the middle here is scope one, which is a company's own operations, and scope two, which is that gray line bar um, arrow on the left, which is purchased electricity and heat and steam. And those two scopes combined are um, what's in the corporate standard. And then using life cycle thinking, we then tried to figure out, okay, how do you get at all the other indirect emissions that a company um, creates indirectly um, through its full life cycle? And through a multi-stakeholder process over three years with a couple thousand people, uh, we developed these, one of the things we do is develop these like 15 buckets of emissions that are scope three. And the standard was published now two years ago. 
Oh no, it's not, it's three years ago. <laughs> and so now we're starting to see how companies are actually implementing it and um, the benefit they're seeing from it. And we just, we're about to launch an e-learning training on the product standard and the, LC, uh, the scope three standard. And for that, we, start, we want to get together some new case studies from companies so, uh, so students taking the training can see how the, the standard can be really applied in the real world. And so here's just an example. It's just a screenshot from the e-learning. So the, sorry if the print is small. I've tried to get as much information in one slide as I could. We can see how HP's, the results of their inventory. And for them, I think they were, they were surprised, like all companies are, by something in the results. And I don't think they expected their own operations to be such a small percentage of their footprint. And um, <clears throat> they assume the majority um, outside their operations would be downstream in the use of their products. So they were surprised to find that their the uh, emissions were so material upstream. And you can see here that they've used the, the results of the inventory to then dev devise a strategy where they have significant categories of emissions. They've then come up with a plan to reduce emissions in each of those categories. And what um, HP told me is that it wasn't, it was while the, like the internal sustainability team understood the value of doing this exercise and had some understanding of where their impacts would be, what it was most useful for was selling others internally at HP about, um, to create the understanding internally that most of their impacts are outside their operations and they couldn't just be investing in projects that worked on their own operations, that they needed to be investing in projects that worked with suppliers and customers. And then one other example is Tetra Pak, which is a packaging company. And you can also see they had similar results that their own operations, you can see in that the diagram on the right, that their own operations are only 4% of their full value chain emissions. And they had, and their impacts are, you know, sort of equally distributed between suppliers and customers. So they came up with a detailed strategy about how they were going to address their value chain impacts. Um, and have enough there's not enough time to include all the slides here, so I just put in one. So you can see, though, it's a five-part strategy, and what I think is interesting is really only one piece of the strategy is working on their own operations. Now, most of the work they're gonna be doing is working with customers and their suppliers. Um, so one of the challenges of scope three accounting that we hear over and over again from companies that creates a barrier and some intimidation about doing the work is that it requires so much data. Um, when you think about just LCA for one product, it's actually a very limited amount of data compared to a corporate value chain inventory. Um, and scope three is essentially a uh, LCA of all your products, then plus accounting for emissions from a, a bunch of additional categories of uh, like business travel, employee commuting. So what we, um, we've been thinking, since we developed the standard, we knew that it would be really valuable to come up with some tool that we could offer for free to companies so that they could at least do a screening of their emissions and to help them just get underway. Because um, they often just don't know where to get started. 
Um, so we, we're working with Qantas and John right now, um, and we're about to launch this tool very soon that um, we hope will really facilitate a, an up, more uptake of the Scope 3 standard and help companies be in full conformance so they at least can do a quick and dirty estimate of all their 15 categories of emissions, and then, then once they see where their biggest impacts are, then they can dig much deeper into those categories. So one, I mean, one of the other challenges of Scope Three is, you know, it's really, it's really a framework for screening. I mean, screen, a framework for figuring out where to focus your efforts for performance tracking. You really then are going to have to dig much deeper, um, and that's where you would then maybe have to do a product LCA. Um, but this, but we think for most of the value, most of the value of Scope Three, you can get out of it just doing. Um, a high-level assessment and using it for decision-making about where to focus your efforts. So this is just a screenshot from the tool, so you can see how it how it's going to work. Um, you you um, input very limited amount of information. That's the idea, just to reduce the barriers as much as possible to getting a scope three inventory. Okay, and then I just want to mention one other initiative that I think is interesting because it also builds off of life cycle thinking. Um, last year, uh, NGO was launched called the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council. And the mission of the organization is really to provide guidance and uh, recognize leadership to inst institutional purchasers. And the, uh, the idea is to um, recognize them for sustainable purchasing because institutional purchasers like procurement officials uh, for governments and universities, they purchase in such large quantities that them together as a group could really leverage the whole marketplace for products. Um, so using life cycle thinking, which is really the foundation of their work, they are analyzing the impact of um, the purchases of institutional purchasing generally. And then based on that, they're providing guidance um, by product category and then providing other guidance on how to set goals and track progress. And for the institutional purchasers that are interested, they also are then gonna be providing a rating system to recognize like leadership in sustainable purchasing. And this is just an example of some of the analysis they're doing to create the foundation for their work. And they did this pilot on higher educational, higher education purchasing. And what they did is just basically did like an input-output assessment of spend for universities um, and then weighted it by dollar invested. And then through that, they identified the top categories of spend um, and that just helps them prioritize the efforts and where the organization's going to provide more detailed guidance and um, recognition. Um, Cynthia was a, uh, felt like I took a while to read her resume, but I actually had to rebudget our, our session when I realized I was going to have to introduce Greg. I had to put an extra five minutes in to get through his CV. Uh, <laughs> um, but our next speaker is Greg Norris. Um, Greg is the co-director of the Shine Initiative. Um, at uh, Harvard School of Public Health. SHINE is the Sustainability and Health Initiative for the Net Positive Enterprise. Um, I will cut his CV a little bit short, uh, uh, but a few other hats that Greg wears. He's also a founder at New Earth, which is a nonprofit 
um, that's developed um, several different very innovative projects, one of which is Erster, an open source platform for product level sustainability assessment, um, and also the hand printer, um, which helps people take actions at home and at work, um, which uh, more than compensate for their environmental and, so, uh, and social footprints, um, as well as the social hotspot uh, database, which we'll actually hear a little bit more about um, later in the session. Um, uh, one other thing I wanted to highlight uh, on Greg's CV, which I think is interesting, is he's a member of the Royal Government of Bhutan's International Expert Working Group, um, which includes 60 uh, experts from around the world um, that are commissioned to draft a new global development uh, paradigm um, during, uh, during the current year um, to promote human flourishing as a, a global goal through effective and pragmatic international public policies. Um, it sounds like a very interesting uh, initiative. Um, but anyway, I'm very glad to welcome Greg and, and hear, about, uh, uh, hear about some of his work. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's fun to be in the student center here. Um, as you might know, my history in this uh, building goes way back, and uh, I don't think I've been in a suit in this building before. So um, I will uh, sort of, I hope, uh, expand your vision slightly of what LCA can be about, very much the subject uh, of LCA, as John framed it nicely, I think, for this part of today's session. Um, and one way to get to this new vision is uh, a path that I think mentally it's a journey I went on through the LCA, through doing LCA for a while, and many of my students uh, go on the same path as they begin to sit back and reflect on what they're learning from LCA. And I've noticed many consultants end up with the same conclusion. So um, let's see how many of you feel this way. LCA teaches us that every product and every service we buy has a footprint. Uh, in fact, it's got many footprints. We'll hear Catherine talking in a few minutes about uh, child uh, labor footprints and uh, excessive working time footprints and so on. There are slavery footprints, but we also have, of course, CO2 footprints, water footprints and so on. Um, and if we're lucky, as, as all of us in this room are, we're able to buy and use products every day, all year long throughout our life. So the conclusion really, well, the, the last thing is you'll notice if you begin to work on your own footprint, whether you're a company or an individual, or you do it both at home and at work, you'll never get that footprint to zero. Uh, even the guy, uh, No Impact Man, did any of you see his book or the movie? A funny guy from um, New York. But he, he really set out to his wife's chagrin to actually get to no footprint for their family. And they couldn't do it. And they did some ridiculous things that you won't convince your spouse or kids to do. Um, so if you'll never get your footprint to zero, is the planet better off without you? Uh, is really a question that I think we ultimately have to grapple with um, as individuals and companies. Fortunately, um, while footprint reduction is key, and I'll be emphasizing that throughout, it's, it's only part of what we can do. And interestingly, no impact man came to the same conclusion. Um, we have feet, but we also have hands. And those hands can do creative, innovative, caring, healing things. 
And we can measure uh, all those handprints, if you will, using the same science, the same databases, the same rigor, the same uh, human capital as we've been applying to footprinting. Um, an article came out thanks to Dan Goldman uh, a couple years ago now, a little over, um, saying that handprinting was going to be an uh, idea changing your life. It's a little late, but um, maybe today that'll uh, start to happen for some of you here. The key is that we can shrink our footprints and we should continue as companies and as individuals to work on shrinking the gray side of, the, of, our, of our impacts. But that's not enough if we want to be net positive, if we want to be good news for the planet rather than a burden on it. And in order to become that uh, good news or, or a net healer, net positive, you just need to give more than you take. You need to create handprints which ultimately exceed your footprint. So what I'll just share very briefly this morning is uh, three ways to create handprints and kind of st hopefully stimulate a little conversation in the period following these three presentations on how do you actually go about doing that with LCA in a bit more detail. There's a paper that I can um, point you to. It appeared in a book uh, on new forms of leadership um, and there's a PDF of, of a sort of methodology paper on handprinting that I'm happy to send folks. Um, it's built squarely on the foundation of LCA. Calculating handprints, as I said, we use the same tools. In fact, we calculate handprints in the same units. So if you've got a carbon footprint, you can create a carbon handprint. You could even create a biodiversity handprint or even a slavery handprint. Uh, benefits somehow for the world on those same dimensions in those same units. It's not about compensating some bad pollution, but doing something nice for, you know, babies over here. It's actually same units, uh, kilogram CO2, bad news and good news. Um, environmental and social, we include the supply chain scope, uh, but it does importantly include impacts that occur outside the scope of your footprint. And that's one of the key aspects of handprinting. Um, in footprints, it sort of surprised me to realize as I began to explain handprints to people that we're, we're hyper counting, I would call it, in footprinting. We're not just double counting. Uh, my footprint includes my laptop's footprint. Apple's footprint includes that same footprint. Uh, the aluminum manufacturer's footprint includes a piece of my footprint and Apple's footprint. And the electricity supplier to the aluminum manufacturer has a piece of their footprint in all of our footprints and so on. We're hyper counting. But we do that on purpose. It's shared responsibility. It shows each one of us we might have done something to reduce that. And it means, of course, if you're trying to estimate total pollution, you can't just add up everybody's footprint. You've got to correct for the overlaps. We have a similar thing going on in hand printing where it's shared credit. It's very rare that when you do something good, you're the only actor that, that uh, was required, whose actions were required to make that happen. And rather than get into a, a, a mind-numbing um, rabbit hole of allocation, uh, we don't need to. Um, we, we simply say, here's, part of my, here's my handprint, and I owe some thanks to the following organizations or people for helping me create that handprint. Now, 
Handprinting is about changing the world, and this is a really, or, or changing some aspect of the world. And this ends up being a really key piece for the methodology. You can, you can calculate the footprint of a product. You just look at its, um, what it took to make it, its supply chain. We saw Cynthia giving us a quick explanation. Um, a product is not an actor. And, and I'm to the point now where I'm seeing that it takes, it's only actors who create handprints. Um, they can do so through the use of beneficial products. Organizations can create handprints. People, households, individuals can create handprints. But products don't have handprints, at least in the methodology as I'm practicing it and, and learning it as I uh, share it with, uh, with other practicing individuals and companies. So it's about changing the world relative to business as usual. And we've defined business as usual purposefully in a very simple but still credible way. For people, it's last year's footprint. That's business as usual. So if you can shrink your footprint this year relative to last year, that's uh, what you compare with for your handprint. For businesses, it's similar, but it's supplying this year's demand with last year's goods and services and production activities. So we recognize that businesses um, are responding to demand largely as an exogenous variable, and it's how they respond that they have uh, a special control over. So three ways to create a handprint. The first way is to reduce your own footprint. It's definitely the, the right place to start uh, for a number of reasons. You're, you're better positioned than anyone else as an organization or an individual to work on your own footprint. Uh, you learn a, a whole lot from doing it. Uh, in other words, practice before you preach. And that's kind of the, the third um, reason. It's, it's for credibility's sake. Before you go trying to create handprints outside the zone of your footprint, Make sure you're continuously working on your own footprint. The cons are that you face diminishing returns, and if you think about it, if all you're working on is your footprint, while that may seem like a, a very good, stoic, even uh, heroic thing to do sustainability-wise, let's face it, even a large company, their footprint next to the global human footprint is tiny. So if all we do is try to shrink our footprint, we're constraining the good we can do by the harm we're now causing. And as we shrink that footprint, we're just shrinking uh, this, the scope of our possible good that we can bring into the world. So that brings us to steps two, which is one of the important kind of eye-openers that comes to companies and individuals when we start handprinting. It's help anybody and anybody reduce their footprint. The planet doesn't care whose footprint it is. It just breathes a little easier when there's less CO2. Uh, and this gives you a much, I mean, a, a huge sandbox or sphere of potential influence, including lots of low-hanging fruit. And there are cultural reasons to support this, as long as you're also working on your own footprint. And finally, we can think outside the foot entirely and essentially include the sphere of generative actions. I, I think it's safe to say that planting a tree, uh, reading to a child, those are not it's warped to try and express those as uh, footprint reductions. They're just bringing something good into the world. But the good that a tree brings into the world can still be measured in kilograms CO2 and biodiversity and other impact indicators that we have. Uh, and I think as we get more into social LCA and more into the human well-being side of, of our full impacts, even reading to a child might be able to be something you could 
you could uh, stack up next to your footprint. So it, it, it really unleashes a whole lot more creativity uh, on behalf of sustainability. And it sort of blows right past science-based targets in a way. I, I think science-based targets are a really helpful wake-up call. You know, 10% reduction in CO2 might sound good, but the planet needs more from us. But just shrinking to whatever the science-based target is also just essentially saying I'm no longer part of the problem. Why not be part of the solution and be the biggest part of the solution you can be? That's what um, handprinting really empowers you to do. We have a group of companies working with us um, and organizations working with us at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health under the, the heading of SHINE, Sustainability and Health Initiative for Net Positive Enterprise. And a number of companies, including some here in the Boston area, are working with us to look at their footprints and understand their handprints and try to, to grow those and really to advance the methodology with us uh, in hopes that it can influence future standardization efforts and and make the method uh, practicable, credible, um, and used. Thanks. Thank you, Greg. Um, I'm our next speaker. I won't bother to, to read my own CV because that always seems a little bit awkward. Uh, so I'll just <laughs> move into the presentation. Um, but my topic is to talk a little bit about um, LCA and, and related tools are helping people um, focus on what matters in their organization. Um, and as I, as I was talking about in the opening remarks, there's a, uh, I think, a big effort afoot uh, for people to be rapidly producing more and more information related to LCA, more footprints on more products and things like that. And I think in doing that, people often lose the focus on what among all this information is important. What should we actually be doing? How can we um, not only reduce our footprint, but think outside the foot and, and so forth? And I think um, in a lot of ways, LCA is a great tool for answering those types of questions of what, what are the important things we can focus on. And so I just wanted to give a few remarks about um, and show a few examples of how these tools can help people you know, put that focus in the, in the right place. Um, one comment I often like to make about LCA is that it's not really the, the kind of the treasure map to sustainability. It's not going to tell you everything you need to know about how to be a, a sustainable person, a sustainable organization, et cetera. I like to say that it's rather more like a compass. It's just a directional tool that helps people kind of point you in the right direction to go. But you have to know a lot about your context that you're operating in to know how to use that tool to get to where you want to go. Um, and so that's the way I like to introduce people to the topic of you know, how can you use this tool as one of several tools in your organization to kind of navigate through um, sustainability. Um, another point I like to make is that uh, LCA is, often fails to answer the questions that we want to ask of it. And in some ways, that's a good thing because it helps us ask better questions. It helps us understand why are some of the questions we want to answer not actually the right questions, or why is there not an answer to that question. Um, to just to give one example, if we try and think of a, a, a comparison of printed books and ebooks, you might want to ask the question of, well, which one of these is better? Maybe if we're a um, a book publisher, we'd like to make a claim that our printed books are better than ebooks or, or vice versa. Um, and I think what you find when you study a lot of topics like this is it's not that black and white. You can't um, claim that, you know, across the board, one of these options is better than the other. There's so many variables about how they're produced, how they're used, et cetera, um, that, that you're just not going to get to a, a point where you're going to say, you know, an ebook is a better option than a, a printed book for everybody. Um, but studying that topic or looking at the life cycle information 
can help you understand a lot of things and help you really ask better questions about that, which might be um, based on my reading habits, which would be a better option? Or um, how could I use either of these products in a way that would be more sustainable? Um, or if I'm the producer of either of these products, how could I make my product better? And so these are often more valuable questions that are a little bit different than some of the ones that we, we try to um, set out to answer with, with LCA. Um, uh, another key challenge is that sustainability is a very multi-dimensional topic. Um, there's a lot of different issue areas we try to address in sustainability, and it's very difficult to make decisions in that context of having all these different um, types of issues and, and numbers that we end up looking at. Um, and LCA approaches can't really solve that issue for us, but they can do a lot to help us get our heads around it and to help us be able to make a better management decision um, usually not with a single number, but with uh, a set of numbers that make sense that can help us really understand the issue that we're looking at. Typically, in this type of work, uh, people can quickly get overwhelmed when we look at, at lists of indicators. It's not unusual to look at LCA reports and see something like this, where you might have, say, 15 different types of, this is just environmental impact, and we're looking, in this case, at um, you know, different scopes of a, of a corporate footprint. Um, and it's very tough, and these are just showing percent contribution, but it's very tough you know, to draw conclusions from that much information. You might want to say, you know, which of these things should we focus on? Are we you know, most concerned about climate change, about toxicity, um, about uh, acidification of waterways, et cetera? Um, and, and this is a topic where LCA tools can actually help us make some sense of that. There's approaches available um, that can help us look at that information and figure out which which of these things um, are the ones that we should be putting more of our, our focus on? It's often not a definitive um, assessment that you know, we should only focus on a few things and ignore everything else, but it's more of a, um, a lens that helps us put focus on, um, on what matters. And so we can take that same assessment and we can weight all those different impact categories um, in a way that would help us figure out um, you know, roughly where do we think we should focus. And in this case, it's telling the organization that climate change, land use, and water um, you know, are, are the biggest um, issue areas for you, and that's where you might want to put um, a big part of your focus. Not that you should ignore everything else, um, but it helps us put that focus on the things that we think are most important. Um, and this can often be complementary to other things an organization might do to assess um, what you refer to as materiality within, uh, within the organization. Um, another area where it can help to bring focus to what a company is doing is where in the life cycle of their product or the value chain of their organization um, should they try and focus their efforts? And Cynthia talked a bit about corporate footprinting. We could look at a corporate footprint you know, as several different stages of their value chain um, and try to understand you know, where should we put that focus. And um, again, in addition to carbon, we might make it a multi-criteria footprint and we might have water impacts included, impacts on biodiversity, um, et cetera. Um, and this type of, of information can help us understand which of those stages we want to focus on. And Cynthia actually showed, I think, better examples than I have of you know, things, companies like Tetra Pak and HP, where this, um, you know, this type of approach helped them focus in on where in their organization should they be putting their efforts. And it's often not where they've spent the last couple decades in their environmental management um, putting their efforts. It's often not at their facilities and things like that. It's elsewhere in the um, in, in the value chain, often the supply chain, sometimes in product use, um, et cetera. Um, and so if you take a hypothetical that you're managing this organization, um, your CEO has decided that we're gonna cut uh, our impact by 20% by 2020, 
They didn't think through very well, how are we going to do that? They just decided that sounds nice, and so they tasked you with implementing that. Um, you know, you'd have a lot of challenges in doing that. You have to figure out what's your baseline you're measuring against, what's included in, in that scope that you're trying to reduce, what's not included, um, and then how should you look for solutions to try to implement that. And this is the, the type of challenge that a lot of people um, and corporations are facing today. We have these, you know, reduction goals, and it's really difficult to figure out how, you know, what is it that we're measuring that we're trying to reduce. Um, and so these tools can really help people understand that and figure out where to, to take those actions. So in this case, we might say, um, you know, the supply chain is where a lot of the impact is. Let's at least start our thinking um, by looking there and see where we might be able to reduce impact. We can do an assessment of what's in the supply chain um, and look, you know, lots of different indicators, lots of different things that we're purchasing. Um, and we might identify, among other things, that maybe organic chemicals is a, a, an issue area you want to focus on. And so we might look at, you know, what organic chemicals are we purchasing? Um, and then we can identify, you know, some categories which are, are relatively big areas of impact and then start to ask specific questions about, you know, what could we do as maybe a substitute for this chemical that's causing a, a not a um, majority of our footprint, but at least a significant part and start to put our efforts in finding reductions where, where there's actually an impact. Um, just a, a quick example of, of a, a company doing this. One company we've worked with is Kraft Foods. Um, Kraft did a, a footprint like this, looking at a few different indicators. Um, and for them, they found that the supply chain was the, the huge majority of the impact that they were having as a company. And so that's actually done a lot for them in identifying their corporate strategy around sustainability, and then also be able to work with stakeholders on why are they putting their focus in certain areas. Often. In an industry like theirs, the consumers and others want to talk about things like packaging, um, which, is, which is important, but they've tried to you know, use this information to help them spin the discussion and say, um, we want to talk more about the farms that we're buying from. We want to focus our sustainability effort on um, the food production. And um, you know, we're working on sustainable packaging or, or other issue areas, but you know, we're trying to spend most of our effort actually on understanding um, where the food comes from, and it's because of you know, this type of approach that helps them see that that's the, um, the big thing in the, in the room. I mean, they can look in, you know, in more detail at their supply chain and figure out which of those, of those items are, are causing the most impact. Um, another step that companies can take with this is to, to use this kind of life cycle thinking to help companies understand um, risk to the organization and to try to um, put this in terms of, of how does this relate to the, the business that they're doing. And so they can look across you know, the stages of their value chain and start to think about how does that corporate footprint start to tell them some things about where might they have risks to their reputation as a company, where might they um, you know, have some risks that could be operational. Maybe if they're looking at their water footprint, they might have a very good idea of what are some things in their supply chain that are big water users um, or you know, water users in areas where there's a lot of water stress that might in the future cause them you know, an operational risk if there's, uh, if there's a drought or something like that. Um, and so we can you know, take a, a footprint of the company and start to use that as a guide, as a, a thinking tool to be able to think about where, where does risk live in the, in the corporate value chain. Um, and this is just a quick example of, of walking through some questions around um, you know, identifying paper purchasing as this example as, as being an area where there might be some um, some, some risks to a company. Um, one other example I wanted to give um, to get out of the corporate world a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, public policy 
um, is a project we had done a few years ago with the state of Oregon, which I like to use as an example, um, again, of how LCA can be used sometimes to address questions that aren't the ones we're used to addressing with it. Um, we got involved with the, the state government in Oregon who is interested to answer questions about how can they put in place a program um, to effectively reduce waste generation in the state. The, the Department of Environmental Quality there is mandated by the legislature to try to um, use money from their bottle bill to reduce the generation of waste in the state. And when they look at where waste comes from, a huge percentage of it, I think about a third, is from construction and demolition debris. And so as they started to brainstorm what are the things we can do to reduce that waste, what they identify is that a lot of the potential solutions are things um, that they're not sure are actually good for the environment. It might be reducing, for example, the amount of materials that they're putting in a home or reducing things that might actually improve energy efficiency of homes and things like that. So they start to understand that these are much more complex topics. And so we launched with them a life cycle assessment of all several hundred thousand residential units in the state to try to help them understand which policy actions they put in place might be most effective at reducing environmental impact of housing their population. Um, and so it's the same types of tools we're used to looking at um, with LCA, but it's a different focus. Instead of looking at you know, the, the LCA of a, a laptop or a, um, a water bottle, um, this is looking at uh, several hundred thousand residential homes and saying, you know, where are the impacts within that life cycle and, and looking at several different um, impact categories. And then using that um, as kind of an experimental approach that we can start to then implement some scenarios and say, well, what if we modified the building code in this way? Or what if we incentivized um, you know, this action among homeowners and things like that? Um, to try to understand not only how do those actions reduce waste, which was their um, stated goal that the legislature gave them, but how do we make sure that we're doing things that are actually um, having benefits in other aspects of environment as well. Um, one of the reasons I like to use this example is because I've been really impressed with how the state agency has followed up on this. They've used this assessment to actually drive a number of, of policy changes in the state. Um, they've put in place uh, uh, a tiered system in their residential building code um, where there's different requirements based on home size. And they've done a number of very innovative things to try to encourage smaller homes in the state of Oregon. Um, and, in many cases, they've cited this analysis, um, which really supports the idea that reducing home size is the most effective way to reduce the impact of, uh, of housing people. And you can imagine as a, as a state government, um, that's a, a challenging thing to, um, you know, to try to promote, but they've been, um, been quite aggressive about that. Um, they have, for example, um, uh, regulations that help permitting processes go faster for, um, for homes with certain characteristics. Um, they've been aligning tax credits with uh, things like uh, the size of homes. Um, they've uh, been working with partners that would potentially exclude from home rating systems, um, for example, homes above a certain square footage and, and things like that. Um, and so it, it's interesting to see how much the, you know, the government's been able to, to use this analysis to actually try and drive some of their policy decisions. Um, so again, I like to, to use that example as a way of getting people to think about how can a tool that we're used to you know, thinking about in a very limited way potentially be used to answer some very uh, challenging questions? Um, OK, our, our next segment of the session, um, we'll be talking about uh, different areas of impact and how work has been uh, underway to really expand the types of things we can focus on um, with life cycle assessment-based approaches. And we've already heard 
a bit from some of the, the past speakers, especially Greg, uh, mentioning some things like social impacts, which in terms of LCA is, is a relatively new um, frontier. There's also other areas within the environmental space that um, are either new or, or rapidly developing in terms of our ability to be accurate about them, and so we'll talk about a, a few of those. Um, the first presentation in our session will be um, from Tom Gloria. Um, Tom's the Managing Director of Industrial Ecology Consultants. Um, he has more than 20 years uh, of experience in the sustainability field, um, and he's worked with a, a wide variety of companies. Um, the list goes on for six or seven lines, but just <laughs> quickly, uh, Avery Dennison, Biogenidec, Cargill, Chevron, um, et cetera, et cetera. So Tom, I'll hand it over to you. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, it's such a pleasure to be in a room full of people engaged in this issue. Um, and this is the only slide I have for today. So you have to look at me. Um, one of the things is, that as John introduced this topic today, uh, you know, looking beyond carbon, and yeah, all right, we've already solved that problem. No, no, we haven't. And one of the first things that you do in life cycle impact assessment, the first thing is, does anyone know? What is, what is the first thing in the standard? Section 5.4.2, what does it tell you to do? Anyone, Professor Norris? Yeah. <laughs> the one we skip over before characterization, classification. Hmm, there's even one before that. That's close, Susan's got it. It's selecting what is relevant. It's the very first step in the standard. What is important? And so that's, you know, to your point about shine, I mean, that's, that's, you know, what's important here? Is it impacts or is it benefits? You know, and that's a, you know, that's a very deliberate step that we need to take in, okay, all right, we got carbon, what else is out there? And one of the reflections of the last couple of years in this area, and John asked me to kind of reflect on uh, a journal article I wrote with uh, Jane Barrett, US EPA, who runs the, the Tracy program. That's the portfolio of impact assessment methods that US EPA more or less shepherds. Um, is that she asked me to work on a taxonomy of the life cycle impact assessment field. You know, really, what, you know, like, what does it take? You know, like, you know, from the point of, okay, we set our goal and scope, and then we start to look at, well, what are the universe of impact categories that you would consider? And, you know, that's an infinite list, but at least it was an exercise, an attempt to start to think about, well, how do we, tr you know, chunk this out? How do we place these things? Because what's happening right now is, you know, Tracy has a, a, a number of categories from climate change, it's ozone depletion. Then we look at human health, cancerous, non-cancerous effects. One that's kind of odd, one related to criteria pollutants, the other's related to acidification, you know, acid rain precursors and eutrophication, so emissions, actually air emissions that then lead to uh, impacts to water bodies. Um, and then fossil fuel depletion, so looking at resources. By and large, this was pointed out by Patrick Hofstetter back in 1998, impact assessment methods have been out there because of regulatory drivers. That's been like, you know, that's the decision mark. Oh, it's because we're regulating these things. And there's, there's, there's an, and then 
ergo, there's a driver by companies. They're looking at these things and saying, well, those, those are the categories. Also at that time, again, this is about 15 years ago, um, looking at habitat alteration as a category and water use as a, as a category. I know that the topic has been more about, well, you know, what's, what's happening in the expansion? Well, actually, in the last 10 years, it's been contraction. US EPA has backed away from water as part of the portfolio. They've also uh, don't include habitat alteration. Why? A lot of it had to do with the uncertainties and the um, risk of running uh, against wrong decisions, using water, just quantity, without some aspect of scarcity or context of what that impact may be, backed it off. Then again, also some of you who work in the domain of the European Union, we have the product environmental footprinting efforts that look at a similar portfolio of impact assessment categories. They also include water, water with scarcity, and they also call, uh, include land transformation. And another twist on many of the impact assessment methodologies is they have some level of context, whether it be eutrophying effects, uh, smog formation, et cetera. There's some fate and transport aspects associated with them that are relevant to Europe. So as one decides both the impact categories and then the methodologies, you can run into issues as to their relevance of those methodologies um, that are used there. So with that, we've seen a couple of emerging areas to try to tackle that, that particular issue, and that's the World Plus methodologies, which is a consortium of folks that uh, some work at Qantas and, and other uh, universities um, to help to create impact assessment methodologies that can be used universally made. And I'm sure that many of you work either for companies or with companies that that's, you know, companies are global. We've heard it many times right now that the supply chain is a global thing and that we have to look at impact categories that will be relevant um, around the globe. So one of the things then that I've worked with in terms of um, these categories and looking at what are relevant categories is in this emerging area of product category rules. And product category rules have, well here in the States, um, not quite as prolific in, the, in, in Europe, um, predominantly dominated by the building and construction arena. And yet again, What's the direction of the number of categories? A reduced set. And in many cases, issues of toxicity, human health, ecological toxicity, are not included. So again, ex expansion on the one hand, in terms of what we're thinking about, but on the other hand, in practice, we s appear to be going in a very different direction. Now some of the reasons around that, um, very deliberate reasons, um, not only have I worked in uh, for um, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, some of you may have seen um, the weighting uh, paper that I've done in terms of, you know, like John was pointing out, okay, we have these categories, how do we, how do we get down to the weights, you know, to, to say which is um, more important uh, than others? And, and I poked Greg Norris earlier, and now I'm going to give him some accolades. He also wrote a wonderful paper on the incongruence as it relates to the weighting. And you have to be really careful on how you weight things. 
and how the impact methods are truly uh, providing that information. What I mean by that is, you know, you have climate change, that's a, that's a category that's wonderful in the sense of international recognition and so forth. The gas mixes, so we all, if you will, to some extent, uh, when we re release that emission, we can affect others. If you have mercury, mercury deposition, that's something else. You emit mercury and it may only affect a smaller region. And so your weighting is going to have to be weighted to how, how, what is the exposure of that? So, you know, in this direction of reduction, uh, which continues, uh, and in, I'll just speak very frankly, um, you know, to use human health toxicity um, within an organization, I know many of you work for companies, where you, given the current science, um, you have to set up the breadcrumbs, if you will, of where my product is leading to both upstream and downstream as it relates to potential cases of cancer. But yet the uncertainties are four orders of magnitude that we know of in terms of parametric uncertainty. It's, it's challenging. It's very challenging to make uh, decisions based on that information as well as even release that information in a, in a public forum. So that's a bit of the background in terms of the, um, you know, this reduction. But on a, on a more positive level on this, and this is why I'm so thankful that John asked me to even speak today and kind of reflect on that taxonomy paper um, that I wrote with Jane in terms of you know, what is this universe that we're trying to capture and all the things that we have to think about um, in terms of making good decisions. That led me to just really, well, again, this first step. What's, what's relevant? And what is relevant is looking for leverage points. And I think Jonathan even, you mentioned that word earlier uh, in, in, in discussion. And it made me reflect on, there's a paper written by Danella Meadows um, back in uh, around 2000 on how to intervene in a system. And, uh, and that's what it's about. So it's one thing, it's what's important. The other thing is, okay, we have this information. We've talked a lot about this. You know, do we streamline the information? How do we present that information? And she went on, a, if you will, a, a, she was at a World Trade Organization meeting. She was getting really frustrated and thinking about how do, we, how do I move the bar? What are the things that we need to do to, to move that system? And looking at leverage points. And so she came up with nine things in terms of um, you know, what are those leverage points? And I, I know I have a few students here from my class and I, and I talk about this. And I, and, and, it, and the connection here is that, and this is the order in reverse importance. So the top of the list of those nine things. Number nine is essentially the world we're in. And that is the numbers, the parameters, the contribution analysis that we do. And that that's that first step. Once we get a handle on those numbers, it helps us to know and prioritize. Okay, so now there's a whole list. And this is where, you know, John's uh, you know, asking me to speak here. It's where I think about, what, you know, where are we in the maturity? You know, this word maturity of, of impact types. Well, there's eight other things that you need to think about in terms of intervening a system. And she talks about aspects of stocks and flows. That's, you know, how these materials might stop in time, build up, create thresholds of change. And with that, there's also then the positive feedback loops. 
it's easier to press the brakes than to control a car that's moving too fast. And so the thoughts about how we look at the system from that aspect and what our impact categories are saying about, oh, there's a positive feedback loop here. And likewise, a negative feedback loop. The things that are self-organizing within systems. Where do we see our impact categories seeing places where, oh, this category or this item is reducing impact over here? I might want to reinforce that, that aspect. Some of the other things that are related to what she talked about is information flows. And I think that we've seen some, like what Cynthia showed us, and there are many other great examples of how important is that information presented and who gets that information within the organization. So this aspect of you know, the companies that I work with, yes, we might have the best method in terms of assessing impact on toxicity, whatever, but if it isn't getting to the people that are making the decision, that information flow is, is negated. Other things are, and we go back to what Patrick Hofstetter told us about impact assessment methodologies, rules of the road, and that knowing what those rules are leads people to knowing where the guardrails are, putting resources to them, and banking that they, the rules won't change and the rules apply to everyone. Where we're seeing that in life cycle assessment, I know that seems like a stretch from impact assessment, but it's important in the sense of low carbon fuel standards. It's one of the first life cycle assessment, true life cycle assessment regulatory drivers here in the United States. We're also seeing that with aspects of uh, recycled fuel oil in um, the state of California. Alternatives assessment in terms of selection of materials that is at the state level. So we're starting to see these rules of the road and using the right metrics that would relate to those rules of the road are important. And I touched on this before, but the self-organizing holarchical system, as it's officially called, but basically giving that information, and this goes back to actually what Greg, you were talking about also, is where the individual can make the choice. So impact metrics, where individuals can, in, collectively, they make choices that work together is incredibly important in terms of leveraging um, systems. And then the overall goals, is it impact reduction? Is it benefit increase? What are those overall goals? And then looking at the system as a whole, how do these all fit together? All the way from the parameters that we're looking at in terms of contribution analysis to feedback loops and so forth. Um, this is all important in terms of how these metrics and measures fit together. Um, you know, sometimes I ref reflect on how um, life cycle assessment can be driven a lot by what is just out there in terms of data. And we have to be really careful that, the, if you will, the tail does not wag the dog because the dog is about what's important and how we use what's important in the system and leverage change. Um, so to summarize here, you know, we're, we're seeing this reduction of categories, but on the other hand, we're seeing aspects of this this need for change, and the need for change is really important and understanding where those leverage points are as part of it. Um, to reference another paper I think that, that may be worth reading is in, uh, John Ehrlich wrote a paper in 1999 about knowledge and environmental change. And it basically comes up with the premise of, you know, more knowledge is good for the environment. If we know more about what we're doing, hence 
we'll be able to solve our problems. Of course, John Ellerk is the iPad equation, you know, impact rules, you know, population, activity, and technology. But also in that, in, in that hidden message that I see in this field is that um, the world's not going to stop for us. In other words, there's knowledge all around us, and there's new ways to affect the uh, environment, there's new ways to affect humans, whether it be nanotechnology of you know, uh, sunscreen and so forth. We have to continue to move forward in this field. And, and, uh, and so I think that the outlook is bright, but on a maturity level, and I was trying to think of the right uh, analogy this morning, and I have kids, I feel like we're somewhere at the stage where we have toddlers that have just learned to walk, and we're parents in the room, and we have to pick everything up before it gets kind of messed up. But we're, we're getting there. But I still think we are. We have a long way to go. And it's great to hear, and we'll have two speakers that are talking about aspects of social, aspects of so important of water. And so I just set that new, that, that context of it's, it's more than the parameters. It's more than contribution analysis. It's how these metrics work in the system. So thanks. OK. Uh, thanks again, Tom. Um, next up, we have uh, my colleague and my boss, actually, Emmanuel Austin, who's our CEO at Qantas. Um, Emmanuel uh, has been at Qantas uh, for several years now, and she came to us uh, from a prior role at Veolia Environment. Um, and uh, I guess in the interest of time, I'll uh, just hand it over uh, to her, and she can get started on the topic of water. Thanks, John. Um, I was asked to um, give you some um, insights about uh, water footprint. I am not the uh, water footprint expert that we have in, in Qantas, but I will try and give you some um, high-level understanding of what it is about and, more precisely, how, how it's being implemented in, in companies to um, evaluate um, impacts of products and, and um, organizations. Um, more and more in the, in the last um, years, we've heard um, about um, global drying beyond um, global warming. And when you assess when, um, what is a major issue um, for companies, you will see that um, the issue about uh, water or the water crisis um, is a relevant impact and um, with a um, great likelihood to appear in the next years, and probably this was already uh, um, something from three years ago, so that will happen quite quickly. So basically, what um, are we talking about when we're talking about water footprint? Uh, water footprinting is about assessing the um, environmental impacts related to water over a life cycle. Um, so basically, uh, just as you have the um, carbon footprint, you will be assessing the water footprint. And we are talking here about impacts on um, water, um, which means that we are going beyond the um, um, water inventory, which, which, will, which is about um, identifying where you're consuming water, but we're looking at impacts. And that's in, in, in this slide. So Basically, what, what are the different steps that you um, do when you um, evaluate your water footprint? 
you will look at your water inventory. So how much water you're consuming from, from the different uh, types of waters, like surface water, groundwater, and so on. And then how much water your product, your process, or your company is releasing back to the environment. And that's your inventory. At this level, you don't know whether you have impacts on the environment from taking that water out and from releasing uh, water back to the environment. That's when you're going to this so-called midpoint where you're going to uh, be evaluating whether your releases, for example, your water releases are good con contributing to pollution um, such as ecotoxicity, eutrophication, acidification, and so on, and whether your water uptakes are um, having an impact on water resources in terms of contributing to more scarcity. All right. So that's the water footprint um, framework. Now, water footprint is at a stage now which is beyond the pure academic uh, work that has been uh, carried out in the last, let's say, eight um, to five, five years. Um, it's now being um, entering the, the uh, path of standardization. Um, last month, actually, this August, was released um, the new um, ISO standard on water footprint, the ISO 14046, on um, requirements and guidelines for um, water footprinting. Um, now, as John uh, mentioned before, um, water foot, I mean, footprint metrics, and in this case, water footprint, can also contribute to better or to, to start your risk evaluation for your company. And the CDP um, um, rating uh, frameworks is going to um, now, uh, is in, uh, implementing the CDP's water um, metrics. Um, and in this uh, sense, your water footprint can help you um, to answer those type of questionnaires also. And um, since I'm uh, Paris-based and I'm French, I can give you some insights from what's happening also in Europe in the context of um, PCR developments at the uh, European level for, for products and organizations, um, which is based on LCA and which will include in these um, PCRs, product category rules or organization rules, sector rules, and this will include um, for sure water footprint as a metric in these evaluations. So these, just to highlight that the water footprint is entering this standardization path era, let's say. So back to the, to the subject of implementing water footprint, what does it bring um, to you as a company, uh, what added value will it bring to you? And I've um, selected a few examples from um, past work that we've done with different companies. Um, so first, um, Pernod Ricard, so the um, spirits and wine uh, manufacturer, um, which we did a, a corporate water footprint with. And that's an example of um, identifying supply chain hotspots. So where exactly in my supply chain um, do I have water footprint or water-related impacts? Um, and 
for this company, it was uh, immediate that the water footprint was in the suppliers, so the suppliers of wine and alcohol, and that's where it was happening, and um, that's where they would have to focus to, um, to have the, the best leverage. Another way of assessing, um, still with the same company, was to identify uh, priority of actions for the di their different business units um, around the world. And what we are seeing on this graph on the left is that if we look at water consumption, we would have said that the first uh, business unit on the top is where we should focus on um, and, um, and less so the, the other ones. If we now look uh, with another perspective and look at do this water consumptions, do they have an impact? Are they, um, is it water that is taken out from, a, for example, a stressed area, a water stressed area? Then the ranking of the business units differs, is different. Um, and you probably will put your priorities in other uh, business units than the one you first thought about. Okay, another example which is pretty much along the same lines is um, working with Intel on um, the water uh, impacts of their industrial um, sites. And then again, on, on the left-hand side, if you look at the water inventory, you have some sort of classification as to where, which um, industrial sites are, most are consuming water most. And if you then go towards an impact assessment, um, you will see that, in this case, the first um, industrial site uh, doesn't have any uh, so impacts on the water resources, probably because it's not in a water-scarce area anyway. Okay, so the rankings and then the priorities will not be the same. Yeah. Another example with um, Danone. Is that how you pronounce it here? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Danone, they've decided to integrate in their reporting scheme along their, um, in their different business units, just as they have implemented um, um, carbon footprint reporting into, I think it's ASAP with them, um, they've decided to integrate water reporting um, as well as a, as a company-wide assessment. Um, so it's already, they've, dis they've decided which metrics they want to use, uh, which methodologies, and it's now being implemented in the tools um, in the company. Um, another example with um, ST um, as to how to use uh, water footprint assessments to um, give you yeah, the first knowledge, the first um, information that you will be using then into, for example, um, your um, CDP water disclosure um, to, to give you more, um, a stronger um, information to then disclose um, to these um, type of disclosure programs. So maybe um, that's another example of, of disclosure in a, um, a CSR reporting uh, with, with Intel, uh, still on the um, water footprint disclosure and also um, en engagements as to um, what they will do related to um, that impact. And that's the last example of how 
um, water footprint information can be used. And in this case, it's with uh, Biotherm, no idea how to pronounce that, um, with the L'Oréal company, where they've decided to use that uh, water footprint information to um, disclose information to the consumers and to use that as a tool to engage consumers on water-related impacts. Because of course, in, in the case of that product, not of, not of course, it's not that obvious, but in the case of that product, the water footprint is happening when you are at home using hot water under your shower. Okay, so these were a few examples of uh, um, how to use um, uh, water footprint. And just like the other metrics, we are at the state now of measuring and then moving on to how to manage and drive the actions plans related um, to that, how to engage, and then how to disclose these information. Okay. Thanks, Emmanuel. And we pronounce it biotherm in the US. Um, our next speaker, the last one in, in this section, is uh, Catherine Benoit Norris. Um, Catherine is with New Earth, where she leads the development of the social hotspot database. Um, Catherine's also uh, an instructor at the uh, Harvard Extension School just across uh, town here where she teaches on a similar topic. Um, so Catherine, uh, welcome. Thank you, John. Hi, everyone. So I'll be speaking about social impacts. I, I like the title that John suggested for my presentation about taking LCA into the social sustainability space. Um, often um, in, in my career, um, we've been mostly thinking about how to make LCA fit for social sustainability and not necessarily how to take LCA into the social sustainability space. So the social sustainability context is the one of um, supply chain risk, um, supply chain benefits also, uh, but uh, very much also supply chain risk. Um, Impact, which is um, an auditing uh, company based in the UK, last year uh, was concluding that the prevalence of issues and exploitation of worker was not getting better. After 20 years of auditing in, in 67 countries, we're still um, concluding that we have a lot to do. We also um, have an increase in trade of intermediary inputs. So we need to assess in different ways uh, because the final product will have moved, moved several times around the planet. Finally, um, every product has supply chain risk. Every product has a footprint, an environmental footprint, but also a social footprint. There are multiple invitations and requirements um, from different bodies, uh, regulatory bodies, but also um, different initiatives. Uh, the one uh, that is maybe the, the broader one is the UN Business and Human Rights Framework. Many countries are figuring out how to apply it uh, at the moment. I know the, the US is very active on that matter, but also Switzerland. Uh, we have GRIG4 that I'm sure you're all aware of, uh, which, uh, which put a greater focus now on materiality and also on supply chain. The Dow Jones Sustainability Index 
is also inviting companies to formalize processes to identify supply chain risk, the California Transparency Act in the US, and the Dodd-Frank uh, Act on Conflict Minerals. So companies are invited or required to look at their supply chain risk at the social level. LCA now. <laughs> LCA uh, bring um, a framework to look into the supply chain uh, risk and benefits. And um, this framework is constituted of methods, models, and data. So, you know, we, we've seen all these uh, graphs where we were looking at the potential or the real environmental impacts on different impact categories. So now you can pretty much do the same for social, looking at uh, different impact categories and what, what's the likely impacts uh, of the supply chain on, on these different topics. And for that, you, have, you need underlying methods. Um, the methods are needed to enable the assessments of risk and the performances throughout the value chain. And these are a little bit different. Um, the risk um, requires, identifying risk requires slightly different methods than establishing performances. Uh, that's your goal and scope. That's, um, you know, what, what aspects are going to be relevant uh, in your study. Um, there are several... Um, work in that matters. Uh, since the late 2000, the guideline for social life cycle assessment of products published by UNEP uh, was the first uh, framework for social life cycle assessment coming from um, a large uh, multi-stakeholder group. Um, the follow-up methodological sheets for social life cycle assessment and now the, the newly released handbook of uh, free consultant on product social impact assessment um, these are all based on work that are conducted by practitioners worldwide and, and that are also published in journals like the International Journal of LCA. Um, if we think about the maturity of social life cycle assessment, uh, I would say that uh, we're still on our, you know, four, <laughs> we're, not, we're not walking yet, <laughs> um, but we're getting there. And uh, we have developed lots of skills, and we can definitely move forward. <laughs> so we also require uh, models. Uh, we often look at, you know, life cycle assessment is about looking at all the impacts from raw material production, including production, manufacturing, transportation, and end of life. But uh, that's a reduction of the complexity, which looks more like uh, this other picture on uh, your left, where there's, you know, a thousand or more than a thousand unit processes involved, and how do you prioritize where you're going to collect the data? It's not uh, practical to be collecting data from a thousand different suppliers, and uh, that might not also fulfill your end goal. Uh, you might not need all that data to answer the question uh, that you would like to answer. And maybe, as uh, John was talking about earlier, maybe you're not asking the right question. Um, I, I think very much for social LCA, LCAs can serve as a powerful way to reformulate questions. So uh, we also need data 
uh, for social life cycle assessment. Uh, data is needed to support assessment by providing generic and site-specific information, uh, both to identify the hotspot and assess performances. So to identify hotspots, you might not need site-specific data, but to assess performances, that's something that you will need. You will need to, uh, to collect data in your supply chain from your suppliers and, and uh, assess it uh, with your methods. So we have a first source of uh, social LCA data, the social hotspot database, that can provide the data for generic assessment. Uh, it provides the data for generic assessment, but it also provides a framework to um, in integrate all the other foreground data uh, that, that will be required depending on the goal and scope of the study. The social hotspot database can be used in uh, most um, LCA software, today it's SimaPro OpenLCA, uh, and it's being tested in Gabi, and uh, of course, um, any other software that would like to integrate the social hotspot database would be welcome to do so. You don't need to start from scratch uh, anymore. You can extend your existing environmental LCA with social uh, hotspot data. So, um, you know, you, you will need to do some conversion, uh, but this is, this is feasible and that's being done uh, widely right now. <laughs> so, um, social LCA and the social hotspot database uh, helps to assess data uh, and impacts on labor rights and decent work, human rights, health and safety, governance and community, which are some of the the, the most uh, utilized uh, social impact categories in uh, social sustainability framework. So GRI we were talking about, or ISO 26000 and so forth. The social hotspot database is used very widely uh, by companies, but also a lot of uh, different consultant uh, universities worldwide uh, on all continents and, and so forth, initiatives uh, such as RAP. It's been also utilized by the EU on a study on whether we should, you know, look at full supply chain or look at um, only the country of, of origin uh, when assessing risk. And that really helped them uh, conclude that the life cycle approach was really necessary to understand and to really understand and manage the risk and not just a country of origin uh, view. There's also more and more uh, education available on social life cycle assessment. So um, there are two or three days classes. One is offered in Barcelona uh, by the International Life Cycle Academy. Many, many existing courses also uh, now include like one or two lecture on social life cycle assessment. And I'm gonna teach uh, this new class on social responsibility in product supply chain at Harvard that is both on distance, uh, distance and on campus. So thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit of, of additional time for discussion. Certainly I don't mean to, um, to curtail a certain point. Um, but uh, we do have a, another speaker coming up. Uh, Elsa is a Thomas Lord Assistant Professor of Material Science and Engineering. Um, prior to her current position, um, she was a research scientist at Engineering uh, Systems Division at MIT and she received her PhD also at MIT um, in 2007 in materials. So Elsa. Um, 
So I'm going to try and be so fast because I, I think the um, we are all excited to have a discussion and um, there's a lot of interest in, in, in digging into these issues and so I don't want to um, get us away from that. I'm also going to shift, we, we're sort of broadening to this sort of how do we get the world excited about sustainability and I'm going to get very specific and technical on it. So I'm going to try and just do that for two seconds. Um, so this uh, project that we've had ongoing, a research project at MIT, um, was looking at how do you do sort of cost-effective um, LPA for rapid, complex, uh, sorry, complex evolving products. So that was sort of the premise. And I think that there's a lot of folks in this room who have so far that we've heard this morning about how do we identify where to focus, where to actually gather primary data, what impacts matter. So I think the sort of theme of, of triage is the word we use, focusing on what matters and, and identifying ways in which to get better data on that or action-oriented strategies um, is, is very much, uh, you guys get that. And so I, don't, I won't spend um, too much time on that idea. But what the tension that we were having in this project was as LPA gained influence, it, it has increased scrutiny. So there's an, it's more, much more challenging issues around credibility with the method on one axis, and then the other axis is we want to do it on all products, as John said. So that sort of tension um, is what we were wrestling with. And I think what, what I think that I would say our contribution is with the set of companies that we've worked with, so we've focused on electronic products and electrical products, and we've extended this approach to buildings, and you know, so it's not meant to be limited, but that, you know, the set of companies that have funded it to date, this isn't everyone, but um, it's largely electronic products. What, we've, what I feel we've met companies where we've sort of started to help companies talk about is how do you really manage the uncertainty that's associated with the, with the data that you're getting? You know, how do you, not instead of just sort of closing your eyes about it, but how do you leverage it to do this sort of triage idea? So that would be one side, sort of how to manage uncertainty. And then because we're at a metrics conference, how do you, what's the right metric for answering what's, how good is good enough? And what that really meant to us in a sort of technical way is I have my, full of my product is really a distribution, you know, it's really just a, you know, whatever form of distribution, because I don't, there's tons of stuff I don't know about my product. And so how, how much do I need to narrow that distribution or get better data in order to say how different am I or what, to whatever decision it is I'm trying to make. So whether or not it's you know, changing my chassis material, you know, increasing post-consumer content of my chassis material, switching to suppliers that use less carbon-intensive grids. What, what sort of leverage does that have on reducing the overall uncertainty in my product um, in order to answer the question that I have? And that, that John sort of alluded to that a little bit and sort of understanding what the question is. So you know, the, the, the kinds of, of work that we've done has, has sort of taken uncertainty on um, and you know, tried to build it in what we're doing and, and then also tried to provide metrics for, for how you answer those questions. Um, and so maybe I'm gonna sort of say one more thought that there's sort of two pieces that we've tried to do. One is develop rigorous ways of doing that screening, so identifying what matters. So you start with this very broad, use all the data that we can find, you know, don't, don't worry about what type of seal it is, but just call it seal and then use a huge distribution of what that means in terms of the impact. So you know, start with the, with the broadest distribution and then narrow in, in order of what's gonna give me the most, most leverage. We used that word a lot this morning. So that's step one, is sort of screening and data prioritization. And that hopefully reduces the data collection effort. And then on the other side, what we try to do is reduce what, or, or focus what a user needs to provide. And that came, I think, in, in Cynthia's point of, you know, what, how can I map the, the knowable attributes of my product? So because we looked a lot of electronics. What can I know about how screen size, amount of memory, processor type, the kinds of things I can know from looking at the website and you know, identifying what product it is, can I map that to what the environmental impact 
and that hopefully reduces the effort of the of the user and also focuses sort of design on on what matters. So I think I might um, mostly stop there. I, lots more detail that I could go into, but I really want to make sure everybody gets to talk and that we also get to have this discussion. So I think you know part. Of, so what I've learned is that we we've worked with the consortium because collaboration is key and data is still scarce. But if we if we're very conservative about okay. I, you know, I know my number is somewhere in the vicinity of five, and this other number is somewhere in the vicinity of six, but if I really just model it as that huge wide distribution, then I can focus on what matters. Um, but, you know, doing that collectively so we can all sort of be on the same page about how it is we're doing these methodologies, I think that would be the other thing that I would say. Um, and then, so collaboration is key, data is still scarce, and then uncertainty is something that we need to sort of implicitly deal with um, throughout all of this. And it's, as you were saying, it's uncertain, the number, we don't really know what the number is. Well, how, what, what do we know about the number? What do we know about the distribution? So I'm going to stop there. Okay, thank you, Elsa. You certainly helped get us back on, on track, and hopefully do have uh, time to, to pick up some of the discussion. Um, our next speaker is um, Terry uh, Swack. Um, we're fortunate to have Terry joining us uh, just a few days after her hip surgery, uh, so um, we appreciate her making the effort to get, uh, to get out and, uh, and be able to talk with us. Um, Terry is the CEO and founder of Sustainable Minds. Um, uh, she uh, also has a very impressive CV. She's a uh, serial internet and environmental entrepreneur um, who's uh, started and worked with a lot of different initiatives. Um, she's talking with us today um, about some of her uh, activities at Sustainable Minds around product transparency um, and disclosure. So, Terry, thank you very much. And thank you very much for putting together this workshop, which was no small amount of effort. Serving all the past presenters and getting the presentations together. John also named my presentation, which, which I liked. And um, for those of you who are not familiar with Sustainable Minds, I started the company about seven years ago. And a very little known fact in the industry is that I started it with the help of Tom Gloria. So he had to he had to scoot out, but um, it's cool to catch up with him. Um, and at the time that, that I started the company, um, I uh, was very interested in, I, I guess uh, now this, this handprinting idea is really going to catch on. You know how how could we scale uh, the knowledge required uh, to bring lifecycle thinking into the mainstream? So our mission as a company is to operationalize environmental performance in the mainstream product development and manufacturing. And so our flagship software application is a streamlined, we call it an eco-concept modeling and LCA software tool that allows non-lifecycle assessment people, so product development teams, to build models of a product's life cycle with as much or as little data as they like. Uh, so that's the eco-concept modeling part. And what we say is um, you got to think differently and then measure. It's not just about the measuring. Uh, you're not going to get any innovation. You got to think differently and then measure. And if you don't think diff and if you think differently without measuring, we heard this morning, then that doesn't matter either. So you got to put both together. Um, so we've been in that business for uh, you know seven years, helping product manufacturers think about how to design greener products. And so I use the term greener as, as a, a placeholder for uh, improving environmental performance. So that, that's what that term means in our taxonomy. Um, but you know, we've actually seen 
industry really change, going from uh, thinking about, gee, green might be nice, to, all right, we've got to design greener products, and now the market is actually demanding that we market our greener products. So they don't just want to, they kind of need to now, and all of the same drivers that drove design are driving marketing, and this issue of brand is becoming increasingly prominent. And so this market demand for uh, product transparency is, is driving LCA-based growth. LCA-based um, approaches, uh, whether it's the report or the way standards are being developed or the way new um, voluntary eco-labels and certifications are being done. And so everyone has rallied around life cycle assessment is the credible scientific method to measure green. But as we've been talking about this morning, it presents some pretty substantial systemic challenges. You know, starting with the fact that it is expensive, it is time consuming, there aren't a lot of people who really know how to do it well. You know, there's only a few Tom Gloria's and, and John Gatlin's in the world. Um, it is difficult to scale. Um, there's, we've talked a lot about a shortage of useful life cycle inventory data. There is no standardized distribution. You know, you know, Greg started to work on that problem a long time ago and it's very interesting to see the work that you're doing now. Um, and further, there is no standard distribution for the metrics guidelines, templates to report, or processes to get certified. It's still very kind of hodgepodge, uh, you know, figure it out yourself. And by the way, it costs so much money. Um, the final point I want to make is that manufacturers have not been good at leveraging their investments in life cycle assessments for marketing purposes. And so all of you who have been involved in life cycle assessment, I'm sure you've seen, you know, you've gotten a budget, the LCA has been done, it gets done, it gets presented to even, you know, decision makers, and then what happens? You know, how, how often have we seen the results of that LCA drive real improvement in, in processes or changes in the organization, and most uh, pointedly exposing that information about uh, what the company's doing to its customers or prospective customers. So last year, um, actually in, in 2012, um, USGBC announced lead version four, where for the first time in a you know, global voluntary eco-label, the opportunity for product manufacturers to help their customers earn points uh, in the lead rating system through conducting LCAs um, became possible. And so we really saw this as a tipping point. And you know, the, the reason I include this stat here is to really reinforce this is a huge industry, one industry with many, many sub you know, categories and subcategories within it. And you know, what happened was, and by the way, uh, I'll do some of the acronym translation, environmental product declaration and health product declaration, those are the acronyms. Um, and the way they, they went about it was they uh, engaged a, a, a very well-known and respected group of technical LCA folks through the materials and resources tag who really created, just did a wholesale adoption of the ISO PCR LCA EPD standards process and that got plugged into uh, lead and said great by 2015 uh, manufacturers should be putting out environmental product declarations and if 
you, architect, builder, contractor, want to get points and read version four, that's when it's going into effect and there's no backward certification to 2013. So what actually happened was one of our customers is, uh, is Toto, the plumbing products manufacturer, the, the largest plumbing products manufacturer in the world. Many of you have been to Asia, you know that every toilet in Asia is a Toto. They're number three in the US, um, American Standard, Kohler, and then Toto. But Toto's been very, very focused on improving the environmental performance of its products. They've actually integrated sustainable minds into their product development process, so no new product gets developed at Toto without substantiating some performance improvement attributes. Um, and so the head of uh, operations for North America came back to us and said, we're going to need EPDs. Okay, well, you know, that's going to be a lot of work. So either you want to shell out a bunch of money to start a PCR process, or um, what we can do is think of something else. Because the people who wrote the lead guidelines uh, also left a carve out at the end to produce a type three environmental declaration, um, or we think at some point in the future, the market will produce another, uh, maybe multiple options that will identify as lead approved programs. So our customer being an innovator said, let's do something else. Great. So that's actually what set us down the path of developing a whole new process for uh, delivering PCRs and, and EPDs. And I think this is important that, you know, USGBC was smart to build it into the standard. Manufacturers really making greener products should be rewarded. Um, architects specifying greener products should be rewarded for building more and greener buildings. But the bottom line is that, you know, architects are like, whew, you know, these guys who are specifying, and they're not even the specifiers, people specifying products, they have no clue what any of this stuff is about. And honestly, they're still purchasing based on price. So there's so much education that needs to happen about what life cycle assessment, measuring environmental performance means anybody to really care about it, it's, we have really got our work cut out. So what's happening today is that the way that the guidelines get written and the way that you get your points drives what we call a box checking behavior. That uh, if someone looking to specify a product will look, to, oh, is there an EPD? Yes, okay, check the box and the product gets add, added to spec. We've spoken with so many manufacturers who say, I have no idea if anyone has even taken one look at that EPD. And we just spent, you know, quarter million dollars, half a million dollars doing the LCAs, you know, participating in a PCR working group, publishing the EPD, and, you know, great, you know, get, get the box checked. But frankly, you know, once everybody has something that gets a box checked, you know, the playing field is leveled again. And honestly, you know, people who care about making a better purchase decision and actually building a greener building are going to look for real information that helps them make an informed purchase decision. Okay, so this is the real problem that, that we're trying to solve, which is this is the current state of how buildings get built. And this is the current state of business. You know, data has to be available anywhere, anytime, in any format that people need it. And it needs to be understandable and simple and delivered in packages 
that make it useful and applicable. So it's not anymore about creating a PDF, you know, putting it on a website someplace in a program operator's database so that somebody can check the box. This is real-time performance information that needs to be available as people make decisions about how things get done. That's the challenge we actually, as, as an industry, have to address. So just to move forward, um, we actually did a very extensive uh, research study on current environmental product declarations, looked at, this is just a handful of them, we looked based on regionality, we looked at different product categories, we looked at the types of content that were being included, and these were really our, our findings that we couldn't really figure out a, why environmental performance had its own brochure separate from the brochure that salespeople use to sell products. So that's an untenable situation for manufacturers. And then really, how does a regular person use all this technical information uh, to make an informed purchase decision? So these are the big overarching conclusions that we drew from the research was that this demand for transparency requires a comprehensive systemic solution, not a point solution. Better design makes the complex clear. Um, you want to provide real advantages over how things are done today if you want to get people to do things differently. You want to allow for continual improvement based on learning and engagement rather than trying to spend time to get everything all right up front. Focus on the benefits of the solution, not the process. And so our end game was, look, it's about the report. The PCR is a means to an end. So our motto is keep the science, everybody agrees on LCA, re-engineer the process. So we've produced uh, a transparency report program. A uh, transparency report is uh, an ISO 14025 type three environmental declaration. We call it a transparency report rather than an EPD. It is an EPD++. We brought it to market at Greenbuild last year. Um, Ritoto Meyer is our LCA technical expert who was actually one of the guys who wrote the credit language. Um, and with NSF as our uh, certification partner. And since we introduced the report, and it was a very uh, disruptive introduction, it, it was great actually. Um, we've been working on um, the whole methodology and we're putting the uh, framework out for public comment next week. Um, but a deliverable of a transparency report program to a manufacturer um, allows them to get started with transparency. We've reverse engineered the PCR process so it's faster, streamlined, more standardized. We deliver uh, a strategic marketing tool that helps people make better decisions. And most importantly, it shows that a manufacturer actually understands the results of their LCA and is using it to drive performance improvements in their products or at least understands how they're going to be doing that. Um, we've offered three levels of verification in case manufacturers don't care or don't believe their customers care about certification, uh, but still it's a standardized way to report. The system level, and we've been talking about water footprinting and other types of reports, the idea ultimately should be that if a manufacturer is going to be doing environmental or social reporting, all that stuff should be in one place. Somebody's trying to make a decision about a manufacturer, you know, why should it be everywhere? It should be one place in the cloud, data, database driven, not encoded in PDFs. 
And at the end of the process, we give the manufacturer their own data back into our Sustainable Minds EcoConcept and LCA software tools so that their product development teams can get started on improving um, the product in its next iteration so that ultimately they can make a better product. So you can see it's a standardized approach. It's uh, three pages. It includes all the functional performance information about the product. This dashboard actually shows uh, functional performance attributes relative to environmental performance attributes. The LCA results and interpretation page is a template that we'll reuse for other types of reports. We have a, a health product declaration version. We're actually displaying the LCA results in a way that, uh, again, makes it possible to compare products from an existing manufacturer, but also really visually evident of what was included um, in the scope. Uh, the right side of the page interprets what the results mean in a simplified uh, visual language way uh, so that anybody can understand it. The framework, um, which as I said, we're uh, releasing the public comment version next week, um, is based on EN 15804 and, and the ISO LCA series. Um, it's a two-part PCR process where all of the Calculation rules and report requirements are in one part, and the part B, which is at the product group level, um, allows product manufacturers who are knowledgeable about their products to do a very streamlined and uh, rapid definition of, of the requirements for comparability at that product group level. Um, actually, ju just to wrap up, we. Uh, have a lot to say about how this PCR process will ultimately make it possible to standardize how uh, product groups uh, get evaluated and reported on, uh, again, in a way that is standardized and consistent. Lots of people benefits. Uh, everybody benefits from a time uh, appropriateness. Uh, again, LCA service providers is really important gives them something uh, new to sell and do. And actually to really spend time on the interpretation, as John talked about, what do the LCA results mean? Because now we have to talk about them publicly. So what do they mean? How are you going to integrate what these uh, recommendations are into what you're doing? It'll help people finally make better decisions. And the rating systems. Uh, will achieve what they're trying to achieve, which is to get more manufacturers doing LCA to uh, get more uh, reports published to award points, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here's the way we look at the system. Everything we're doing is about helping a manufacturer make greener product decisions, but we think that design and marketing is an integrated process. And ultimately, it's a continuous improvement loop and you can start anywhere you want. You can start with the need to market better. You can start with the need to design better. But ultimately, it feeds into that cycle of continuous improvement. I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Thanks, John. Um, but our, our final talk is from Susan Murphy, who's with PE. Um, she actually has a degree also from MIT, so she's uh, also coming back, uh, back home, so to speak. Um, uh, and I guess I'll hand it over to her, uh, to her to uh, get into her presentation. So thank you, Susan.
John. All right, I'll, I'll make this quick because I know we want to have some time for discussion. Uh, as whoa, um, this did not import correctly. It looks like, but anyway, we we know that there is uh, increasing demand for sustainable information. It can be expensive. How do we simplify it? How do we scale it? That's the main topic of this third panel. And I apologize. Looks like these are all messed up a bit, but. There's so a few different ways that we can do that. So one is by making it easier for LTA information to be not just in the hands of practitioners, but to get it out into the people who are making those decisions, bring it to the designers. The SolidWorks sustainability software is something that we launched in 2008. Um, P International, for those of you who are unfamiliar with us, are the makers of the Gabby lifecycle assessment software and databases. So we have that software and databases, we're also LTA consultants. And We've taken our databases, linked them to other types of software, such as the SolidWorks sustainability software. And this allows the mechanical product designers, as they're working in their traditional SolidWorks 3D CAD environment, to see on the right-hand side of their panel LCA information popping up as they're working. So we're bringing LCA to people in their familiar environment, making a lot of assumptions initially, such that they don't have to enter any information about transportation, manufacturing, We'll make assumptions around all of that by just linking to their existing definition of the materials in their products, let them see some initial results. If they know more about transportation, manufacturing, anything else, they can go in and edit it. But this is an attempt to help bring LCA to a broader group of people by putting it in a familiar environment for mechanical designers. And then in 2013, we launched the same thing with a partnership between Autodesk Revit software and Karen Timberlake Architects to bring LCA data into the architecture world. And down here you see a screenshot of the um, Autodesk Revit software. Same idea, make a lot of assumptions, make it really easy, get some initial quick results in the face of the architects who have the ability to make some different design decisions based on LCA data. And for the more advanced user, they can go in and edit the assumptions, refine the results. For those people who don't, um, you know, are, both of those two products are really geared at helping get that quick initial estimation. For those who want to get more accurate and refined still, we've created some links to help bring the data from the company into the LCA practitioner's world in a streamlined and simple way. For example, we've set up some systems where you can import that data coming from the company's ERP system, bring that bill of materials directly into your LCA software let the software generate an LCA model based upon the hierarchy of your product. So you've got you know, your, your main product with components and subcomponents, mirror that same bill of materials hierarchy in your LCA model, look at your results, use that to help design a better product, figure out where your hotspots are, and generate reports. So we can go either way, bring LCA data to the designer or have the designer information come easily to the LCA practitioner, both ways of helping to scale. You pair that together with something like an environmental product declaration, and that enables a company such as ZoomTable to produce EPDs on 10,000 products, not just one or 10 products. This is how we're really helping companies get to that scale. Build a software link between the company's ERP system and lifecycle database. It was a large investment for them to build this strong software link, make sure that we understand what name they use for the materials, how that compares to an LCI inventory name of material, link them together, understand the manufacturing processes. But if you can build this software link and verify the software link by the program operator, 
then you can all of a sudden start cranking out EPDs in a few hours for you know, single thousands of dollars, not $100,000, $60,000 projects anymore. Um, really help bring, bring it to scale for those companies who have lots of different products but are using similar materials, similar manufacturing processes for all of them. That's one sort of output is the environmental product declaration and Terry just explained a lot about why that's becoming important with LEED and, and other initiatives. But as we've heard throughout the day, there's a whole bunch of different types of reporting people are looking to do, lots of different hotspots out there. So th we know that there's all these different initiatives underway to figure out what's important because the LCA results, we've, we've talked many times this morning about how there's all these different metrics you can look at. How do you pick which ones? What's relevant for your country? for your product type. There's, this is a very short list of what's a, a huge scope of different types of hotspot analyses out there. And in order to sort through that, I want to mention briefly this hotspot analysis flagship project that's underway by UNEP PTAC. Um, this is the same lifecycle initiative that was mentioned earlier about how the methodologies for social um, assessment is underway. So the same group of UNEP CTAC LCI is trying to develop the, uh, the common understanding and of what's going on in all of these different systems. How do we agree on the best practices to creating these systems, make sure that they're science-based, take this LCA information, all the science-based information, and make sure that it's being used appropriately in these hotspot analyses so we can build a, a global understanding of how these work, what are the best practices, and develop some guidance documents about how to, um, you know, how to create these different systems such that it shouldn't matter which country you're in or which product type you're looking at, but there's some coordination of the methodology and the, a little bit of the terminology to what's going on here. The, this project is currently in the process of wrapping up their initial understanding um, step. So going out there, evaluating, I think, 40 different types of hotspot type assessments that are out there and that represent a wide range of topics, coalescing that into, okay, what are the commonalities, what are the differences, what's working, what's not, and that report will come out in December. Um, then there's some future work going on with the large stakeholder engagement to further refine all of that, take it, and next step will be developing, you know, what are the best practices, how do we help um, make sense of all of these different assessments out there and help to coordinate this globally. And so that will continue, it's a multi-year project underway. For anyone who's interested in participating in this project and learning more, it's being led by my colleague Jim Fava at PE International and Mark Bartel at, um, at RAP organization are the two people really leading this particular UNEP CTAC project. So with that, I'll stop here and turn it over for questions.